Hello and welcome to my podcast, WTY. What the youth? I'm Laura and I'm a youth worker and I currently work with 10 to 17 year olds who are at risk of gang crime and knife crime. Over the next few weeks I'm going to be talking to a few youth worker friends of mine who've had their own battles growing up and now help young people to be the best people they can be. We'll be talking openly and honestly about our experiences of youth work and delving into the world around us. I do hope you enjoy it. Please know we will be talking about sensitive subjects, but we may also have some giggles sometimes, because if you don't laugh, you cry in life. This is my attempt at trying to be Stacey Dooley. Please like, share and don't forget to subscribe. I really appreciate you listening. Now let's get into the podcast. W-T-Y, what the youth? W-T-Y, what the youth? Hi guys, it's Laura and welcome to my second podcast. Now, this week's been a bit of an odd one. Uh, I turned 28, Uh, I'm getting old. Uh, The real feel of, golly, I've got a lot to do before I turn 30 is kicked in. But also, I had a slight stressful 36 hours where... I and everyone around me thought that I was displaying COVID symptoms. Um, So that was a bit of a stress. Um, Luckily, I got tested very quickly and waited 36 hours. And it was negative. Hallelujah. But I can only say that I was super stressed about it. Not because I thought it would impact me, but because impact the people I come around. For instance, I don't usually meet up with people all the time, but because it was my birthday, I'd come into contact with two different sets of six people and a young person. And in that two sets of six people, one of them was my husband's 80-year-old grandma. So I was very concerned. So learning from it, all all I'd say to people is, don't be a bloom. If you've got symptoms, get tested to make yourself safe and self-isolate. As you can hear, I've still got a bug of some kind. I sound very croaky, so you'll just have to bear with me for that today. Anyways, on today's part of the podcast, it's going to be slightly different. Every All the other weeks, I speak to a youth worker friend of mine. And next week, I'm going to be speaking to a youth worker friend of mine who is an ex-con actually he was in prison and now he does my job and he's got an incredible story but today I want to share my story because on Saturday the 10th of October is known as World Mental Health Day and I really believe in the power of a testimony and I really feel like it's important for me to share my story I'm not going to share all of it because that would be a bit too deep darkest grounds but it's important for people to know that just because you have your own battles in life doesn't mean you can't help others and if anything I think you can help people more professionally in my role I'm actually told not to share my story but I can actually be empathetic from the experiences I've had And this isn't just my story, there's lots of other elements to my story, but one big part of my life up until the age of 21 was mental health. And the mental health condition that I had was bipolar disorder. So I'm going to spend this podcast just talking you through it. And yeah, I hope that you can share this 
and it either helps you or someone else you know because there is hope even when you're in that darkest tunnel there is hope so just a pre-warning and trigger here this is going to talk about some very full frontal issues including suicidal thoughts and um other other deep dark things so just put a trigger warning out out there you know if you want to listen to it listen to it with an adult but if you think it may be a bit too triggering maybe listen to my week one or maybe listen to next week anyway i hope that you're able to enjoy this i'm sorry again about my croaky voice but today is just me a little recorder i've got telling you my story from the depths of bipolar disorder to stabilization anyway let's get into the podcast so where should i start with my story and battle with bipolar disorder let's start back at the very beginning i was a really happy child um i loved life i was very much a tomboy i always struggled academically i'm gonna talk about that in a another episode but i was happy i had two lovely parents especially close to my dad i grew up next to a house of six boys and my brother so i spent my every day after school i would play football outside um we would do knock down ginger we would try and charge people 20 quid to wash their cars no one ever took us up on the offer i went on nice holidays i had a really good group of friends at a young age and life was good there were no worries but there were a few things starting to show by about age six i really started to get very bad night terrors i would think that someone was pulling my back at the top of the stairs when i was asleep and i'd wake up on the landing and i i had a lot of very vivid night dreams all throughout childhood but none of that really prevailed into the daytime there were no real showings of mental health there were showings of dyslexia and dyspraxia and possible ADD but there was never showing of mental health anyway fast forward till age of about 12 I started to have a few issues around food I I started to only eat at dinner. I'd starve myself until dinner time. I'd, you know, start trying to slim down. I would start to over-exercise. Anyway, it was manageable. I was never anorexic. Um, but I definitely had a very unhealthy attachment to food. Um, and it, I became addicted to the scales. Luckily, this never blew into a full-blown eating disorder, but it was definitely there. Anyways, at age 13, I went from this lovely small prep school where life was joyous, everything was great. I had these friends and I was so excited to go to boarding school. Now, before I say this, I don't want to put anything against the boarding school because it was nothing to do with the boarding school. I was very lucky to go to such a school and the teachers did everything they could to help me. But I just wasn't suited to boarding school. I thrived on a small, all-encompassing community, not a large community where, you know, there was one housemistress to 50 students. 
it it just wasn't right for me but I still think it helped me be who I am today anyway the first few weeks at boarding school were great I loved it I was thinking oh my gosh my future I was planning everything I've always somebody who's kind of tried to plan ahead in my head my dad always tells me off actually but I thought the whole world was my oyster I'm gonna have this friend that friend you know um and then I was like okay let's fit in let's get in a relationship with a boy you barely know and I did and then he spread some rumours about me, some really horrible rumours. And that's when the bullying began. And I'm not saying that bullying caused my mental health, because it didn't. But I definitely think it was the first trigger. And the bullying was really, really bad. But it was also isolating. And what happens, which often I see in young people, is that when you are bullied or stuff happens to you you get used to being the victim and it's almost like you place yourself in those situations subconsciously without meaning to so I just became more and more isolated I'd eat food on my own I would you know no one would walk with me if I tried to walk with someone they'd run off you know it it wasn't a good time but anyway about six months into boarding school all this loneliness had kind of really got to me and I first started to experience depression. Now, depression, I often describe to people as opening your wardrobe, looking at your wardrobe and looking at it for like three, six hours and just not knowing what to wear. You have no energy. You have no ability to love yourself. And... I may have not spoken about my depression at that time, but my body definitely was showing it. You know, I stopped looking after myself. I stopped brushing my teeth. My hair was unkempt. My clothes were bad. I just sort of gave up on myself. And this was over a period of of three years that my depression, it would go in waves, especially stressful around exam times or just as going back to school. I remember trying to, run out of the car when my dad was driving back to school one week and you know I just wanted to get out and it wasn't I wanted to escape the school I just wanted to escape my brain you know and what started off as low level depression and I did try to get help and then the GP said to me you're not depressed you're just a lonely sad child so when I should have got help at the early intervention which is what I'm all about in youth work is getting in early I wasn't given the help, you know, so that really derailed me and it just got worse and worse and worse. I'm going to talk about something quite sensitive here, but, you know, I was like, how can I get out of this? And one day I packed my bag and I was ready to run. If I hadn't been allowed home that day, I would have I would have run off and I I planned in my head where I was going to stay and what, you know, what train track I was going to go to, you know, it was, it was not a good time. I don't know how to explain suicidal thoughts to people, but I always say to people that I didn't want to die. I really, really did, did not want to die. But my brain was just all encompassed by it. I remember doing my GCSE revision and just 
literally, which I've seen in some young people I've worked with who are very traumatised, I was literally drawing ways to kill myself on my textbook in the library. I was so trying to focus on my work, but all my brain could think about was what will be the least painful way to die? I just thought I was a burden and I saw no way out. You know, what happens if I fail my GCSEs? Like, then there is no way out. And I remember, you know, constantly in my head thinking, what's the least painful way? I would draw pictures of hanging, pictures of trains. You know, there was no reason for me to do that. It was just my brain telling me to. It was like, I can't cope with it, so let's get this onto paper. But it was on the paper of my, you know, my geography GCSE revision round the sides. But still, I didn't want to die, and I'd write in the bottom, I can... This is not your option. This is not your choice. And you know, at this age, I was only 15, 16. And I've, I've seen this in young people I've worked with, you know. Subtle ways to maybe try and ask for help, you know. Hoping that maybe a teacher will see that book. And then they'll be able to get up that CAMS waiting list. That CAMS waiting list that is six to eight months if you're lucky. And if you're 17... You know, don't even bother because you're not going to get there on time. And that's the reality of the underfunded system. Anyways, I would then, every time a train would pass, I would hold onto the wall. And the reason I would hold onto the wall was because my whole body would be telling me to jump. It'd be telling me to throw myself and I would literally feel the push. The same when I walked along roads, I'd feel the push to jump in to just end it all. But I wanted to live. I didn't want to die. And, you know, during this period, unfortunately, there were two different people that I knew in my life that weren't able to ask for help. And they did die through suicide. And thank God I didn't. But I was so close. I would, every light bulb I looked at, I'd feel this this suffocating around my neck that that wanting to hang from it and it was not something I wanted to do but you have to understand when someone is suicidal that you know that their subconscious mind just goes a hundred million miles away in an hour or goes nothing at all they're just empty and no matter what people say they can't get that suicidal ideation out their head it's just too hard to cope with and yes, talking helps, and yes, CBT helps. But sometimes without medication, it's just too hard. And from ages to 13 to 16, I had no medicine because a doctor said to me, you're just an unhappy child. In counselling, counselling wasn't enough for me. You know, I believe in talking therapy. I believe in CBT. I want to be a therapist one day. But sometimes... It's not enough. Sometimes you need that medication to come in because without that medication, how are you supposed to start to work with the trauma or whatever is going on? Your brain needs to be stabilised. Anyways, another time I had suicide, I slept with um, pills under my pillow, a bag, you know, like one of those old drawstring wash bags um, my brain was telling me to swallow all these tablets and I was in I was in my of course my housemistress at school knew nothing about this and she wouldn't why would she but I had collected all this paracetamol and ibuprofen and I had popped all the pills out and I was placed them in this bag with the plan to do it 
I didn't want to do it to put it under my te- my pillow. And I slept with it under my pillow for two and a half weeks before I flushed it. You know? Interestingly, nowadays we see self-harm in young people. I don't really remember self-harm being around when I was younger. It was there, but it was more it was more secretive. I could never actually put a knife to my arm or a, I only put a razor to my arm once. But I would do suffocation, I would do other things, I would self-neglect. But yeah, anyway. Moving on, I went I left I left my school at 16 and thought, great, a new school. No one will bully me there. You know, I'll be this new person. And the reality just wasn't the case. I was still suffering mental health. And if you suffer mental health, how are you supposed to succeed in a new school? I still thank this school move, though, because I actually had a great housemistress who noticed I needed a scribe for my exams. And because of that scribe, I now have a degree. I have good A-levels and I have good GCSE. So I'm thankful for that. But that was the first time I did get help. I did get medicine, but the reality is that, unfortunately, that medicine was the start of another side of my mental health. So I took Prozac, fluoxetine, which is an antidepressant. It's the most commonly used antidepressant on the market. And it's great, and it works for so many people. And it can be used in the short term or in the long term. And I will forever be grateful for the drug that started to help with my depression. But unfortunately, what happened with my fluoxetine, and which is what my journey is, is that I was on quite a large dose of fluoxetine because my depression was so, so significant. And what happened was that it triggered my first manic episode. Now, I always say I would have always got mania at some point in my life. But like bullying triggered my depression, it didn't cause it. I believe that bipolar is, you know, rooted in genetic vulnerabilities and stuff like that not saying my anyone in my family has bipolar disorder but there is definitely a mental health trait within my family um somewhere along the line um Prozac triggered my first manic episode and I always say to people that and to my family that depression is hardest for the sufferer to suffer But the manias are hard for the family of the sufferer to cope with. Because to the sufferer, the manias are, when they're hypo, not hyper, there's a difference, I'll explain that in a bit. When they're hypo, it's like the world is your oyster. You can do everything. I can be this person, I can be that person. My card, my card's got an unlimited limit. If it stops, I can phone, I can make a phone call and I can call people and be like, money. I can lie on loan applications and say I'm this money. And mania is a dangerous place. You know, mania is a very dangerous place. So at first, my mania is manageable. This is what's called hypomania. And this is like the, the first bit. Hyper is when it goes a bit more significant. You know, I think people actually thought I was fun. I moved to another college and I had, I had all these friends, you know. Laura was the party animal. Laura was the club promoter who could go out three, four nights a week. And, you know, was never tired. 
you know Laura could get this card out this like magic card that kept spending money you know and with my hypers I'm not gonna lie I became very um promiscuous and there was a different man every like two different men a week for a period of about two years and yeah and I would spend six months getting high and then six months getting low and when I was high my parents just wouldn't know what to do how do they control this fireball you know there was nothing they could do and I went on I went on lithium and olanzapine and I tried all these drugs but I just wouldn't commit to them I'd stop taking them because I didn't realize I was ill but I was ill and you know psychiatrists took away my license twice my driving license but still then I didn't understand I was like why is this man doing this I'm fine I've got this I've got that you know I was exuberant anyway I go off to uni and things seem a bit more stable but then in the summer of 2013 was my was my turnaround year. But it was also the deepest, darkest year. But my dad always says that when I got admitted to hospital, that he felt like that was the start of the next chapter, that I needed that. And that's true. I needed to reach rock bottom to realise that I needed medicine. And that medicine for me was the only way to try and start to come to terms with the life that I'd been living with no control anyways what happened was that I had a psychotic episode which developed very quickly over about a period of five days and I was found throwing the entire context of my bedroom out the window and in my head at the time what I was doing was I was bleaching the items that my ex-boyfriend gave me and then throwing them out the window because I thought in my head that I was marrying this stranger this person that I'd never even talked to. And then I started walking. I was just walking around Brighton. And I came back and there was an ambulance there. And they took me to hospital. But I managed to walk out the hospital. This was A&E. And I just kept walking. I kept walking and walking and walking. For someone who has chronic pain, I was walking for six hours. More disturbingly, I was walking barefoot. And you have to remember that this was a psychotic episode. This only happened once, and this is very extreme. So please know that most people who have bipolar disorder would not reach this extreme. But it, it can happen. I was walking around Brighton trying to search for this wedding I thought had been planned for me. I went all the way from Hove down to Brighton Marina, and then up all the way to like to the race course and because I'd left the hospital my dad had to report me as a missing person and he went round Brighton for two hours in a taxi because he'd come down on the train from London you know and he found me in Hove barefoot and my response was oh that's where my shoes are because I'd left them in the hospital Anyway, got me back to hospital. I wasn't sectioned. I was an informal patient. I agreed to go in. But the reality is, if I hadn't have agreed, I would have been sectioned. And anyway, about midnight, I got given a bed in Eastbourne. I still find it weird going to Eastbourne now, passing the hospital. But anyways, and there was 
what I now know, having worked in the industry, an approved mental health professional met me, an amp. And my dad always says it's the kindest person he ever met. And she just sat there and she listened. And my parents aren't people who cry. Actually, my dad does it sentimental things, but he hides it. But my dad just burst into tears and she said, don't worry, we can help it from here. And I was left there. And because this had been a crisis situation, my only clothes was a hospital gown. My other clothes had to be washed because of the amount of walking I'd done. So for the first 72 hours, I was just in a hospital gown. And I was in an an NHS hospital. I wasn't in the Priory or anywhere like that. Because the reality is, is that the NHS is there for us in emergencies. And the NHS is an incredible service. And Eastbourne's a bit of an older psych unit. There are some personal rooms, but actually I was in in the dorm. About a ten-bed dorm, a curtain in between, schizophrenic on my left. Manic depressive on my right. And very sadly, also some dementia patients who, due to not being able to find placements in the community, were there. That broke my heart. Anyway, what I just what they always do when you get placed in hospital is they do a drug test. Because often, people get drug-induced psychosis. Which is what I often see in young people as well. Drug-induced psychosis. So a lot of people that from extreme cannabis use now have schizoid tendencies disorders, you know? And because I was 21, I wasn't in a CAMS unit. I'd never went to CAMS. I didn't get that help. So I was, I wasn't even 21, sorry. I was, I was 19, so I was very young. I was a 19-year-old in a mixed mental health hospital. There was a different ward for men and women, but you shared the communal space downstairs. So you can imagine it was pretty scary. But the first 72 hours, I thought I was related to Jesus. And I know you got a laugh because it is quite funny. And I thought I was there to look after others there. And I sat at this long table for dinner and I thought, oh my gosh, like this is the last supper. Like, like the disciples. And, you know, psychosis can do crazy things. But anyway, about hour 72, reality hit. And I went, oh my gosh, where am I? And I just remember crying for four hours. How has my life got from there, got from here to here? How can a girl who, you know, went to private school, had five-star holidays, has parents who are bankers and work in television, and their daughter is here? I must be a disgrace. How am I going to get up from this? But I did get up from it. That summer was a journey and I spent two weeks in Eastbourne. I didn't really get any therapy when I was in Eastbourne, I'll be honest. But it did stabilise my mental health. And that summer was in and out, you know. I went to an ADTU in Watford. And that's where I met the doctor that I think saved me. Um, His name was... I'll say his name just in case he ever listens, Dr. Ravi. And I've never been able to contact him again. I've I've tried. I'd like to be able to tell him where I am now and, you know, 
but he was the manager at ADTU, which is a day unit in Watford, because I got transferred from Eastbourne to Brighton for one night and then back to Watford. Actually, no, reverse that. Eastbourne to Brighton because I wasn't actually registered at a doctor's in Brighton, at, in Eastbourne, but then they realised I wasn't registered in Brighton. I was there for like a night or two. They had their own rooms and everything. It was much more luxe at, at Millview than Eastbourne. And then I was transferred to a hospital in St Albans to be nearer my parents because my dad, bless his cotton socks, had come up every day after work from London all the way to Eastbourne and then go home. He, My dad is a saint. If you ever meet my dad, you're blessed. He is an absolute saint on earth. So is my mum. My mum's very pro, pro, proactive, but my dad is... He, he's an absolute saint. There's there's no question about it. So going to St Albans and I was there for about a week and then they kind of discharged me to ADTU, which is acute day treatment unit. So rather than being residential, you go home. So you go on a mini bus each day to Watford General Hospital and you spend all day nine to five there and then they take you home. So it, it you know, it's basically like being in hospital. You just, you're, you're considered low risk enough in order to be able to go home. Um, and that was actually very good experience. But what was most good about ADTU was the fact that I think I found my saving grace in medication. Not really talked about medication before in this podcast, but let's just say there's a lot on the market and I know that people struggle with meds I know it and I've had those struggles too but to me the side effects are worth it I'd rather be well and overweight than ill and a size two you know but there are some drugs that I found particularly difficult um, back when I was about 18 or 17, I went on a lanzapine and I went from being about 10 and a half stone to being 17 stone within a period of four months. And that's no under exaggerant. Um, that's a very weight gaining. And I got so big that actually once I'd had my mental health recovery, I actually had gastric surgery. Um, because the medicine I take is a weight gain. And if I hadn't have had gastric surgery, we pay privately for it, but if I hadn't have had gastric surgery, I I would have ballooned to 26, 27 stone, but I would still rather be overweight and well than underweight and ill. I remember being on one drug called Respiridone when I was deep in hospital, and I would just drool, like I would literally just drool, but you know what, I needed that medicine at that time. I didn't need that medicine long term, but I needed it at that time. That antipsychotic calmed me, and it lowered it. Anyway, Dr. Ravi came up with a great drug. I tried everything. I tried lithium. I tried olanzapine. I tried diazepine. Now, I had tried absolutely every drug on the market and nothing had seemed to work yet. And then he recommended sodium valparate, Depakot. And this was my wonder drug. There are some bad things about Depakot. Um, it's an Egyptian salt and you can't have babies on it. Um, if you have a baby, it's a bit like the new formidabide. Um, your child could be born with severe autism or missing limbs. So 
this became more so apparent after years and the pills started to have, every pill would have a pregnant woman with a cross through it. But that pill saved my life. And I took it for oh, 21 until 27. Took that pill for six years. And I weaned off slightly, but that pill was my crutch. You know? 2013 was the start to my recovery. Since 2013, I have not experienced one mania or one depressive episode. And for a while, every summer, I would get scared. I would get scared that I would get ill again because mania usually happened in summertime for me. And my brain would prank tricks on me. But I didn't get ill. It was miraculous. People would say it's miraculous. You know? And... It, it's great, but I also realised, and I had to tell my family this as well, so they weren't scared that if they saw me sad or they saw me happy, that I was ill. Because in life, you still get sad and you still get happy, and that's okay. If you fail a degree or if you, if you have a breakup, it's okay to feel sad. If, you're, if it's your birth, it's okay to feel happy, but it's about having that and being managed, managed well, you know, and not being too far gone or too this. And sometimes I still talk fast, but I only talk fast when I'm tired. And I always find myself still saying I'm not manic, I'm just tired. Because there's fear, there's fear in me that people will think I'm ill again. And I don't want people to feel that there's no harm in being ill. And I think it's, you know, so one in four people have mental health at some point in their life and I'm a female if I was a male would I be dead if I was a male because I wouldn't have asked for help the amount of men that die because they don't feel they can ask for help you know but you may want to ask how did I recover and I do really think a grounding is the medicine and to me I am a massive activist for medication and I, I've often heard people say I mean I'm currently not on it, but the reason being is because I'm, uh, I'm 28 and in the next few years I'd like to have children with my husband. But that was a big scare for me coming off the meds and I saw a specialist per perinatal uh, maternity psychiatrist and thank God, touch wood, six months down the line I'm still stable and hallelujah. And so was bipolar sort of just something in my teens? But we, I, I don't want to jinx it by saying that. You may be asking, how did I get well? And I think medication is, is the vital bit there. But also it's what happens around to me and what I try to do with young people. When I do a, you know, a life wheel, like who is around? To me, it's not everyone needs medicine, but sometimes people do need medicine. It's about feeling part of a community. So my dad said, join the church, and I did. And for me, the church in Brighton, Emmanuel Church, was my saving grace. I found true friends, real-life friends, not just acquaintances, friends that will tell me straight up when I've done something or, or laugh. And, you know, these are the friends that I have fake Christmases with every year. And, you know, the friends that were my bridesmaids, and the friends that, if I have girls, will be my future godmothers, you know. And I found a sense of belonging. I belonged and I felt I could express my worship. And I'm not here to preach Christianity to people. And that's not everyone's 
forte, but for me, that was my community. So what I try to do with young people when I'm working with them is find their community. Is it a local boxing club or is it a YouTube community? Is it a is it going out in the cadets or is it just having that older person a, a garage that you go work experience with also my family having family that loved me enough to not abandon me and also i think another thing is i didn't abandon sticks so i went back to brighton it could have been very easy for my my psychosis was very public it was very apparent that i had been ill and some people witnessed that illness head on but if I would have left and just wiped that under the carpet and gone, right, let's forget about it, I don't think I'd be where I am today. You know, from then I was able to graduate with a 2-1. I then went on to do a degree. Uh, um, I then went on to do a postgraduate degree. I've then gone on to have four jobs and get married. And don't get me wrong, life's not been perfect. And I always like to remind people this, that things still go wrong in life. And that's okay. But my mental health has been able to sustain through those periods. And for that, I am eternally grateful to my family, to my medicine, to Dr. Ravi, if I could ever see him. I'd love to speak to him. Maybe I'll try and get him on a podcast. <laughs> but I've tried before. I've not been able to make contact. And, you know, and I just think the kids I work with don't have all the opportunities to get better that I did. You know? They may have the medicine, but they may not have the family or they may not have the friends. And without all these pieces of the puzzle, how do they get better? You know? So I feel blessed, very, very blessed. Of course, I still have fears in the back of my head that if I were to get pregnant, that another it could spike another episode. But I've got to live with those fears and know that I can't let my fears determine my life and that I still should have the opportunity to do these things. I hope you haven't mind me sharing my story and I, I think, you know, it's important to share. You know, there were other elements that have gone in my life that may have contributed to why my mental health got so bad. But as I say, my mental health would have happened anyways. It, it's a genetic link. But... I wonder, and I do wonder, if that doctor on day one hadn't have said, you're just an unhappy child, could have I nipped it in the bud earlier? Could have I caused less pain to those around me? And it wasn't my fault that I caused pain, but I did cause pain and financial issues to people around me. And my parents still stand here today and they still love me. And for that, I can just only talk about grace they are gracious and they are amazing. Anyway, you may be asking what what I would say to someone who was maybe feeling low. Ask for help, please ask for help. Don't don't feel like you need to hide this all away because you don't. I know that mental health statistics around men and suicide are just so huge. Please ask for help. Call Samaritans, type in Wellbeing Mind online, look up these things. If you don't feel like you can tell anyone around you, speak to someone who's elsewhere that doesn't know you. It's never too late to ask for help and it's never too early to ask for help. 
if you think your, your mood's changing slightly, don't think, oh, but it's not full-blown depression. Get help early on. If I would have got help much earlier on, I don't think I would have ended up in hospital. If at age 13, someone would have said, right, Laura, let's get you intense counselling and let's get you a medicine to stop this from turning into full-blown bipolar disorder. And it's not that my parents didn't try. It was that this is what the response was from the GP, was that she's just an unhappy child who's being bullied. And they were, yes, I was an unhappy child who was being bullied, but I was developing a full-blown mental health disorder. So please ask for help. Know that there is no shame. Know that probably your neighbour, the person opposite, the person in the corner shop, probably all have felt like you have. Maybe in varying degrees. Just ask for help. And find something that you want to do. Find your passion in life. And if you have had the histories I have, it may be that you don't want to be a youth worker or a social worker or a lawyer, but... It may be that you want to be creative from it. You want to make amazing art. I know that I know that not everyone recovers and I am very blessed that I have recovered. Touch word I always tell myself and thank you, Jesus. But remember that if your journey isn't healing, there is still goodness within the pain and there is still joy within the pain. Anyways, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. I know this has been a bit full on, but life can be full on. And actually, if we don't talk through what we've been through, how can we help others? So, yeah, that's it. Sigh of relief. That's my story out. Please share this to people that may need it. If it can help just one person or one person can know what to say to their friend. I just hope that that can help one person. Anyway, that was just me telling my story. I look forward to seeing you next week. It's been so much fun having you along with us on this ride today. I do hope you'll pop in again next week and I'll be talking to another youth worker about a different topic that we cover in youth work. We do know that all different young people have their own issues and that sometimes things may be a bit sensitive to others. So please be open and honest with the adults around you and your friends and always remember it's better to ask for help than struggle alone. On my page and Facebook and Instagram, you'll find lots of useful links to organisations you can contact to get help. I look forward to continuing the journey with you on this new podcast series, WTY, What the Youth. Bye for now. WTY, What the Youth.